This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we bring in Glenn Deckhazer of Red 8 and a very special guest, Gene Kim, the author of The Phoenix Project. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to a very special Tech on Tap podcast. Um, this week we brought in Andrew and Glenn. They're all here. Um, and actually, I just heard a beep. We have another Glenn on the phone. Glenn Deckhazer has also joined us. Glenn, um, how are you doing? Oh, I'm on mute. Actually, oh. it, helps, it helps when you push the button. All right, cool. So, so Glenn, we'll, we'll get to you in a second. We're going to go through and uh, just start introducing everybody, and then we'll, just, we'll get started here. All right, so uh, in the studio today with me is Andrew Sullivan. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Good. Glad to be back two weeks in a row. I know. Uh, this is this is very unexpected. Um, I was actually starting to rent out your seat. You know, I, I had to pay the appropriate bribes and tariffs. So, Well, yeah. you know, I mean, I, that is income that's lost now. Um, times are tough. You know, so my apologies. <laughs> anytime. <laughs> um, and also on the phone with this is uh, none other than Glenn Sizemore. Hi, Glenn. Well, I'm doing my part, Justin. Uh, I, I went ahead and vacated my seat so you could go ahead and just, just w- sell that out as we had been selling Andrew's seat. Actually, we rented it out to Andrew today. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So it, I like how you're subletting back to yourself. This is like That's the Airbnb of podcast. <laughs> oh, I hear, I hear laughter. Is that, is that none other than the author of The Phoenix Project, Gene Kim? <laughs> yes. Uh, hey, great being here, Justin, Andrew, and Glenn. Awesome. We were able to wrangle Gene Kim uh, for our podcast. He's a very busy man, and he was kind enough to give us an hour of his time. So we're going to make this as uh, efficient as possible, unlike other podcasts we usually do. Um, so, Gene, if you could tell everybody about yourself um, and what you do, if people aren't familiar with you, and then also some of the things you're working on. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and thanks for having me on today. I've been... Uh, studying, I've been studying high-performing technology organizations uh, since 1999, and so that's a journey that started back when I was the CTO and founder of a company called Tripwire. And so our goal was always understand how these amazing organizations, you know, made their good to great transformation, so that the rest of us could replicate their amazing outcomes. Uh, and so one of the big surprises was that it took me really into the heart of the DevOps movement, which I think is urgent and important. In 2013, uh, I worked with. Uh, team that we came out with a book called The Phoenix Project, uh, the novel about IT, DevOps, and helping your organization win. And uh, just uh, about a month ago, we finally released the DevOps handbook after over five and a half years of work. And that was with Jez Humble, John Willis, and Patrick Dubois. So uh, I cannot tell you how many uh, things I've learned in that journey. And uh, next week, we have the big DevOps Enterprise Summit in San Francisco. It's uh, November 7th to the 9th. And uh, that's been a real area of passion for me, Just uh, which is all about not studying so much the unicorns of Google, Amazon, and Facebook, really about, uh, you know, my area of passion is, you know, how are these large, complex organizations that have been around for decades or even centuries, you know, how are they transforming? So that's organizations like Capital One and Target and Starbucks, uh, U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Raytheon. So that's super, super exciting to me. Excellent. Can, can we expect the sequel to the book, The Dark Phoenix Project? <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things that I've always wanted to do was uh, uh, essentially tell the Phoenix Project again, but from the perspective of development and architecture. But, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, and and really talk about like how that team at the end of the book, you know, the unicorn team, right? How did they do what they did? And in fact, like one of the big comments that uh, came out of the Phoenix Project was, you know, how did they do the amazing work that they did? Um, you know, a novel's great for. Um, I think winning the hearts and minds of people to show what a DevOps problem looks like and why you know a DevOps might uh, be good for them, whether they're in dev, test, operations, or infosec. Um, uh, but uh, you know the so the, the DevOps handbook is really meant to fill that uh, need, which is you know a nonfiction prescriptive guide in terms of principles and patterns. Um, yeah, that really describe how organizations transform. All right, thanks a lot. So um, we actually have two of your biggest fans in the world here. Um, Glenn Deckhazer and Glenn Sizemore. Two Glens, actually. You get two Glens for the price of one. Um, we actually discussed your book on stage at NetApp Insight in Las Vegas uh, with Glenn Deckhazer. Uh, so let's introduce Glenn Deckhazer and let him tell us about what he does, and then we'll, we'll dive right into the general discussion. Well, hi, I'm Glenn Deckhazer from Red 8, and uh, I'm the data management practice lead as well as a NetApp uh, A-teamer. Uh, proud of that. And uh, as you said, we were talking about your book, uh, in, you know, on stage out in Insight, and uh, it was it was an eye opener. And I think you might have seen a uh, rush of downloads a couple about a month ago. <laughs> By the way, I did see the talk too; it was really great. Uh, thanks so much for the shout out, uh, uh, Glenn and team. Hey, no problem. Thanks for doing great work. All right, so let's dive right into this. Um, given that we have so many of your fans here, I'll let them go ahead and start driving the questions. Um, not that I'm not a fan, but I would like for them to have the opportunity first. So go ahead. Uh, let's start with Andrew. <laughs> yeah. So first of all, of course, thank you for coming on. Um, you know, a, a little bit of history here. Uh, so Glenn and Justin and I, Glenn Deckhazer, were asked to do a, uh, a presentation during what NetApp calls the Tech Team Forum, which is our sort of internal, uh, you know, employees-only forum for uh, discussing new technology ideas happening at NetApp during Insight. And when we were meeting with the various people, right, the topic of DevOps was the one that we ended up uh, going with as far as the discussion. And we were really fortunate to be able to, uh, you know, Glenn Deckhazer had a copy of the DevOps handbook on stage that we were able to talk about, right? I'm sure you saw the video uh, as far as everybody else um, if you have not seen the video yet, uh, we'll be sure to include it in the show notes for this particular podcast uh, because it is publicly available. But, um, you know, I just kind of wanted to get your idea of, you know, DevOps is sort of an ephemeral thing to a lot of people, right? I, I like to look at it as DevOps as a term is the new cloud, right? There's been a lot of cloud washing over the last five to eight years, right? And, <laughs> and DevOps is almost becoming the same way, right? There's If you're not associated with DevOps, you're, you're just not one of the cool kids, Um so I, I'd love to hear your opinion on that, as well as what you, where you think DevOps uh, needs to go, right, where, from an organizational standpoint. And what I mean by that is, I'm a new customer, or, or, or excuse me, I'm an organization who wants to implement DevOps. What does that really mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, by the way, I really did enjoy that uh, session. I watched it online, and it was, I thought it was a very, uh, you know, passionate plea for uh, how to be aware of what DevOps problems look like. You know, uh, let me first start by saying that I, I think we can be very precise about what DevOps is, you know, even though, you know, I think in the community there's been a reluctance to define uh, DevOps or make a DevOps manifesto, but in my mind it's very clear. What we put in the DevOps handbook is that DevOps are the set of uh, architectural patterns, the technical practices, and the cultural norms that enable the fast flow of work as we go from dev through test and operations and information security, um, and we need that work to happen quickly. 
so that uh, we can provide value to customers, but we also need that uh, work to be reliable, secure, and stable. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, uh, for many, uh, I think for most of our careers, that's been uh, not the case. You could get one, but not the other. But also DevOps is exactly what enables small teams to be able to develop, test, and deploy value to customers independently, you know, without having to coordinate with hundreds or maybe even thousands of other developers. So, uh, you know, I, I guess I'll just note that I haven't exactly said what DevOps is, but I have described what the outcomes are, right? What are those necessary prerequisites that you need to achieve those uh, amazing outcomes? And, you know, I think what makes it so relevant to everybody in the value stream, whether you're a product owner, a developer, tester, ops, infosec, uh, regardless of where we are in operations, storage, server administration, networking, DBAs, right, uh, is that, you know, there's a certain universality to problems that we face in technology work. Um, and I think one of the most gratifying things about the Phoenix Project is that, um, you know, so many people have... Uh, you know, have written me, tweeted at me saying, you know, it's like you've been uh, hiding in our building. You know, I just walked out of that meeting. I know these characters. Uh, and, you know, that was just so gratifying because I think it does say, it says that we painted, we captured what that core chronic conflict was that exists in almost every technology organization, you know, independent of, you know, what technology we're operating on or what industry vertical we're in or how big the company size is, uh, whether it's profit or not for profit. Um, and so really without countermeasures like DevOps, you end up in, in you know, this horrible state, you know, regardless of whether you're in dev, test, or operations. So uh, maybe one of this last thing, maybe to sort of put this in perspective, you know, the, the Phoenix Project is really modeled after a book called The Goal. Yeah, that's. Uh, it was written in the 1980s. It was a novel about a manufacturing plant manager who has to fix his cost and due date issues in 90 days, otherwise they shut the plant down. And so that book has been integrated into almost every mainstream MBA curriculum. And when I read that book nearly 20 years ago, yeah, there was just no doubt in my mind, the lessons in that book were relevant to technology work too. And so you know, for a decade, we wanted to write the book that book for technology. That's what the Phoenix Project is. And one of the things that Goldratt talks about was that he would get letters from people, you know, in manufacturing saying, you know, it's like you've been hiding in our manufacturing plant. You know, it's, you know this describes to a T what we face on a daily basis. And so you can imagine how gratifying it was that, you know, we were able to strike a similar chord, you know, in uh, the technology field as well in terms of being able to capture that problem. And so I think the reason why uh, we talk about DevOps is that, you know, our ability to you know, uh, solve that problem, right? To create fast flow of work, to provide stability, reliability, and security, to enable developer and engineering productivity. I think that's on, you know, that should be the, you know, in everyone's radar screen. Um, uh, and so that's why I think it's important. So uh, I have the, the fortune of being at Gartner Data Center in December. And one of the things that's interesting about that is, you know, Gartner published their bimodal IT, right? Mode one, mm -hmm. which is sort of traditional model of, of you know, uh, to use a containers uh, ecosystem term, right? Monolithic applications, waterfall development, and then mode two being this sort of more quote unquote modern perspective, uh, you know, oftentimes associated with DevOps, et cetera. Um, you know, my personal opinion is that that's kind of dangerous thinking, right? I implying that only new things are concerned about things like availability or security and all of these things, whereas, or excuse me, only legacy things, whereas uh, all, the new things are more concerned about being agile and reacting more quickly. Um, I, I would be very much interested in your opinion on that and whether or not um, it's it's valid to have this bimodal or this bisection of, of interests. 
Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think a lot of people sort of take offense at that term. Um, and yet, I have also been in rooms where you know there have been senior technology leaders who see this notion of like multiple deploys per day. And they freak out, right? You know, they're responsible for 6,000 applications. Uh, a lot of them are the systems of record, you know, that uh, where the finance reporting happens. And, you know, uh, you know, I think their immediate reaction is like, oh, no, that's not for me. right? And I think the, you know, the bimodal IT construct really does, in some ways, is soothing, right? It's a way that says, you know, you don't have to do everything at once. You know, here's a way to partition your, you know, applications and services mm-hmm. so that you have a better idea of where to start. Um, but I, I think, like you, you know, uh, yeah, I think that we can't use an excuse not to elevate the state of the practice across our entire organization because, you know, as you speed up these systems of engagement, these uh, systems of, um, uh, you know, the places where you're gaining competitive advantage out of, you, you put enormous pressure on uh, eventually the system of records on the back end, right? You can't, you know, have mobile applications and uh, the, uh, you know, the customer facing order entry systems now doing, you know, a hundred times more work and not have that result in some changes, you know, to the back end. And, you know, I think Scott Pru, uh, he's the uh, head of product development at CSG, the largest bill printing company in the U.S., uh, there's a quote in the DevOps handbook from him that he said, you know, we reject bimodal IT because every one of our customers deserves speed and quality. That means we need technical excellence, whether that team's working on a 30-year-old mainframe application, a Java application, or a mobile app. And I think that's really the reality that, you know, that's really the end state that we're going to be heading towards is, uh, you know, how do we make sure that every team, you know, is as productive as if they were at a Google, Amazon, or Facebook, and it you know, almost is independent of what technology stack they're running on. Actually, Gene, that's a, that's a good one. So uh, this is Glenn from Reddit here. So um, one of the things we talked about when we were on stage was uh, trying to, I don't want to say port, but at least translate the, this whole the DevOps discipline to uh, people who, for the most part, talk to, let's call them legacy IT folks, right? People who are key, who are in the brown fields of, of IT. And many of them don't really understand, I think, the problems that their customers are facing or, you know, that they're, they're staring this kind of transformation from within, maybe it's starting to bubble up. And so many of them are having difficulty, I think, having those conversations and, and, and understanding where to take, you know, from a consultative perspective, where to take their customers to. Uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on that from not just the customer side, but also the people who deal with the customers who are, who are implementing technology and, and, and providing uh, technology consulting. Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, by the way, Glenn, it's great to hear your voice again. And, and uh, that really resonated with me. And, and maybe just to directly respond to, I think, a comment that you made on stage is that if I were to uh, paraphrase uh, what you said is that, you know, anyone who is a seller or a uh, you know customer-facing person, you know, needs to understand uh, you know the DevOps problem that needs to be solved, and and that resonates with me because you know I, I think it's often too easy, uh, you know, whether we're talking to a developer, a tester, an ops person, or you know, I came from the information security world. It was very easy to make an information security. We got so focused on our parochial information security problems, not realizing you know, this greater problem that needs to be solved is how do you get everyone in that value stream um, you know, working in a way where we can maximize competitive advantage. That means we have to have reduce lead times to get to market, uh, whether it's features or whether it's storage or environments or test data. You know, all those things we need to be uh, you know focused on that goal. 
um, as opposed to, you know, how many tickets can I close or, you know, what's my availability, you know, percentage for the, for the year. And uh, I, I think one of the great examples is, uh, I think it was the CTO of Ticketmaster. He said, you know, uh, he showed a video of, you know, people on an aircraft carrier, you know, whether you're uh, in aviation or you're doing ordnance, uh, you know, you know what the mission is, right? Your your job is to make sure that people can get in those planes, drop ordnance on target, right, to, you know, achieve the mission goals. And if you're in food services or laundry, you know, your goal is to make sure that all those things are right so that those aviators and ordnance people can achieve their mission. I mean, there's a always kind of that focus on what the, the goal, uh, when, you know, why we're here. And I think, yeah, especially in centralized operations, um, you know, it's, it's so easy to say, "Hey, I haven't heard any complaints. I I configured those settings, or you know, I, I created those environments." Not realizing that it wasn't exactly what that development team needed in order to get to market quickly, and that we introduced you know potentially twelve weeks of additional lead time. So, um, you know, I think I think you know for anyone in a technology organization, and certainly anyone selling to those organizations, I, th- I think it really. Uh, any place where we can elevate the discussion to say, are we really helping our organizations win? And the reason I think that's so important is that how almost every organization these days, how we acquire our customers and certainly how we deliver value those, to those customers almost invariably requires work from the technology value stream. And you know, so for any company to say that technology isn't our core competency and that we don't need a world-class engineering organization, you know, I think is the height of fallacy, right? The uh, those organizations that have those technical capabilities, it will quickly win at the expense of those who don't. So you're saying that if you, I'm dealing with a customer, that I'd better be a lot more aware of why they're buying the technology versus what technology they're buying. I um I I, I think taken to an extent that that's absolutely true, and you know I, I think uh, almost any selling training would would say that. But yeah, I, I think what's so amazing. Um, is you know in large complex organizations you know uh, silos are a fact of life and no one can have yeah you know, I think when you're trying to do a DevOps transformation uh, you just don't know where your fellow travelers and kindred spirits are and I think one of the uh, the things that you know any place you know, whether it's a seller or a consultant you know if you have relationships into those uh, pockets of greatness being able to you know, get those people talking to each other, I think has tremendous value and, you know, helps those people do these transformations because often they're talking to uh, fewer people than people outside the organization. Uh, am I making sense, Glenn? Am I taking that too Absolutely. far? No. That they, I mean, we just today were talking to a customer about a value stream just about provisioning storage to get them, along, you know, started along the process, not trying to make a big splash, not trying to, you know, change the organization, but talking to a specific value stream, a technology value stream that they're having issue with and deal with one and try to get a little success and let it spread. So, so I, think that's, I think that's along what you're talking about. Yeah, in fact, you know, so uh, to define value stream, you know, this comes from the Lean Toolkit, and a value stream is simply defined as, you know, how uh, the value stream is the set of all steps required to go from initiation of customer demand, um, you know, to actually that customer getting value. And the reality is in large, complex organizations, you know, to go from, um, you know, a feature being ready to be deployed to, you know, the customer actually getting value from it could require hundreds or even thousands of steps spanning hundreds of teams. And so, you know, to even just enumerate what are those steps required, you know, to go from code complete and a source code repo to, you know, environments available, all the storage is available, permissions set, you know, to deployment actually being complete, you know, many of those teams have never even talked to each other in real life. And so the value of, you know, documenting those steps and understanding who those people are and what's in their way for them to be able to get 
that you know with their work done quickly and uh, done right the first time you know, is so powerful. So, Gene, what would be your advice to companies that are looking to implement DevOps in their environment as starting out? Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The question of like, what is the best way to start? In, in all candor, you know, the answer is we didn't know several years ago, and that was the reason why we started putting together the DevOps Enterprise Summit. And I, th- I think as leaders, as adult learners, we tend to learn less from you know people saying what they think we should do or from theory. Uh, instead, we typically learn from you know hearing what other people did and what they learned out of it. And so one of the things that we did in the DevOps Enterprise Summit is we were very deliberate about like the type of presentations that we wanted. And and every presentation was in the form of an experience report. So in other words, uh, you know, these were leaders of large complex organizations, you know, who are embarking on DevOps transformations. And so the the specific form of the presentation was uh, you know, here's our company, you know, here's the industry we compete in, here's a business problem that we wanted to solve, here's who I am and where I fit in the organization chart. Uh, here's what we did. Here's what the outcomes were. Here's what went wrong. You know, here's the problems that still remain. And you know, I, I love that just because uh, they're very concrete. And so I think for anyone who's looking for a place to start, um, you know, all those talks are available, uh, both the slides and the videos. So I'll make sure that uh, you get a link to those uh, uh, the YouTube videos and SlideShare uh, links. And a lot of them actually made it into the DevOps handbook. We have 48 case studies uh, where these are very concrete descriptions of how other organizations um, went. And I, I guess if I were to break it down into three typical you know, starting points, you know, one of the things that we learned is that you know, the most, uh, if we went by titles, uh, the top title uh, in the first year of the conference in 2014 was Director of Operations. Um, which was a surprise because I think kind of the common narrative that you know we often would tell ourselves is that you know DevOps is being driven by you know uh, renegade dev managers who are just impatient, um, waiting for ops people to get with them what they need, and you know, they go straight to the cloud. But so the uh, the case the population in 2014 was really driven by operations saying, hey, you know we need to get our uh, engineering teams more productive. We need to give them what they want when they need it without opening up a ticket. You know, how do we get things more self-service? The second most um, uh, common title was actually chief architect, which I thought was very interesting because the way I was trained during my days at Tripwire was that, you know, the, you always avoid the chief architects because they're the people who, you know, draw one Visio diagram once a year and then they go back into the ivory tower, you know, and uh, you know they come back come back one year later to draw another. Visio twenty you know two thousand three diagram, and then the second, the third most prevalent title was the director of development, um, and so, you know, I think where initiatives typically get started right there is either operations creating this kind of platform as a service or infrastructure as a service or platforms where the goal is you know how do you increase developer productivity, uh, the second pattern is you know the chief architect looking at the entire value stream and saying, hey, there's got to be a better way to do this. How do we expand pockets of greatness and get them used, you know, more widely across the organization? And then this, you know, development saying, hey, look, you know, we've got to have better automated testing. We've got to be able to reduce the amount of pain required to get into uh, through testing and into deployment. Um, And, you know, they'll just start from the version control repositories through continuous integration, through, you know, probably continuous uh, delivery and deployment. So I, I think those are the three archetypal patterns. Uh, does that resonate with what you've seen as well? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm along the same lines of thinking. I mean, you don't want to jump into something because it's the new thing to do. You definitely want to make sure that you're asking people what they've done and making sure that you are approaching it met, you know, with a method as opposed to just you know rolling it out there and seeing what happens. Yeah, and I, th- I think there's this other kind of pattern that uh, we've observed is that, you know, um, it's about scoping kind of where to start. Um, and I think kind of the, the two mistakes that organizations make is either scoping it too large or scoping it too small, right? So scoping it too large is um, a problem because, you know, you, you want to start the efforts on something that's not the biggest, most important um you know, service for the entire organization, right? Because it means that whenever we make mistakes, and mistakes will happen because we've probably never done it before, um, you know, we, there's always a risk of being shut down because it triggers the immune system of senior leadership, right? So so that's not uh, appropriate. But going too small carries risks too because it means that, uh, you know, when we actually, you know, set up, say, a Jenkins pipeline or we, uh, we uh, you know, set up some small capability, we show it to people, and it immediately gets to dismissed as a hobby, right? We haven't actually proven anything. They'll say, you actually created no value, and we get shut down that way. So I think one of the things that um, I think the, the transformations as evidenced uh, at the DevOps Enterprise Summit and in the DevOps Handbook is what they've done very well is, you know, picked a great middle ground where uh, they've chosen a uh, a business problem of significance. They've generated wins um, that everyone will agree is like, holy cow, you solved one of our biggest problems. And I think that's one of the reasons why one out of four people uh, who are presented, you know, these type of case studies at DevOps Enterprise, they've been promoted at least once. Uh, essentially, they're being uh, put in roles where they're being asked to solve even bigger problems or even being put into a staff role where they've, they're have they saying, hey, look, can you elevate the state of the practice across our entire organization? And that could involve hundreds, thousands, or even over 10,000 developers uh, or engineers, I should say. So you know, I think that's kind of the, uh, uh, the, the thinking process to that goes through a good scoping effort. So, uh, are you seeing in organizations that are are going down the path of of DevOps that are that have an active DevOps initiative, if you will, is it being led by you know infrastructure slash operations? Is it being led by development teams? Is it being led by management chains? Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think there's a couple dimensions to the answer. Um, you know, our uh, our analysis says that you know if you look at the presenters doing these, uh, it's you know often it's the Director of Operations, um, followed by Chief Architects, followed by a Director of Development. Um, I guess the third, the, the second observation I make is that the titles of people, you know, driving these transformations, they're uh, they're typically at the director level, and to me that's interesting because it says that yes, of course you need grassroots support, but you do. What's special about these kind of second, third line managers is that they're they have the business perspective of what it, what business problems need to be solved, but they're also close enough to the work where they actually know kind of all these new miraculous different technologies and practices can be used, you know, to make ourselves orders of magnitude more productive. So what that says to me is that grassroots is not enough, right? We need, you know, someone with uh, more authority, you know, who can actually, you know, not, knock down doors, you know, reduce obstacles, but it's not someone so high, uh, you know, at the sea level, right, that, um, you know, it may be so far removed where, you know, they can't, uh, they're not close enough to the architecture, the technical practices, 
uh, and the cultural norms to actually affect you know how daily work is done. So, yeah, that, that's kind of one of the big surprises for me. So yeah. you need a lieutenant or a major, not a corporal or a general. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's see here. So yeah, the the, the captain or the major, right? Not the uh, field marshal or the private. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's so, been uh, my uh, perspective as well, right? And that most of the time when we do talk with somebody who is, you know, a developer, you know, uh, actually writing code or an operations person actually managing infrastructure, right? It tends to be, you know, how do I implement this tool or how do I take advantage of this tool type of discussions as opposed to, you know, how do we implement this philosophy type of discussions? Yeah, and, and I think that gets to kind of like what, what my surprise around the chief architect was, right? I, I think it's, um, I, I think the reason why the chief architects are showing up so often in these discussions is that, you know, in many cases, they're the only people who see the problem, right? Because, you know, the development management chain, they're saying, hey, um, we got our feature done, you know, on budget, on time, <laughs> right? And we marked it as complete in the, uh, you know, whether it's in JIRA or, uh, uh, you know, Team Foundation Server or whatever. Um, and the ops people, right? They're saying, "Hey, uh, we, you know, we got the storage available when we said we did, right? Uh, you know, we closed our ticket within, you know, two days, you know, according to our SLAs, <laughs> and and yet no one's actually achieving their goals, right? Uh, you know, uh, we're getting horrible flow in the whole value stream, and and so you know when that happens, it's usually you know someone in architecture or someone." You know, sufficiently removed from daily work that says, "Holy cow, wait a minute!" Everyone says, "You know, they're doing a great job," and yet it still takes us nine months to get a feature, you know, into production. So, uh, I think that really does uh, expound upon and validate exactly what you just said. I I, I love that phrase. Uh, what's wrong? I haven't heard any complaints. <laughs> right? It's like uh, yeah. I closed my ticket within a day. No problem. My favorite, my, my personal favorite term for that is job done or task complete, job not done. That, yeah. I love, yeah, I've never heard that before. I love that. Yeah, task complete, job not done. Exactly right. So, Jesus, this is the NetApp, you know, Tech on Tap podcast. We would be remiss if we didn't at least talk a little bit about storage, I would think, right, guys? So, um, do you think, I guess I'd be interested to hear uh, what you feel are the most important value streams to attack from a storage perspective so that we could give, you know, the, the, the community of NetApp folks that are out there kind of uh, something to look at in their own environments, in their customers' environments. What, what do you think would be a good first step for them to kind of start on this journey to helping their customers embrace a DevOps philosophy from this, just from a storage perspective, even though it's not a, a huge value stream, you know, from from start to finish in an organization. Well, yeah, I, I guess though I would assert that you know everyone in storage should have confidence that they're a critical part of the value stream because you know it's one thing to have an environment, but you know, increasingly every one of these things have huge storage needs, and so the ability for people to you know be able to get the amount of storage they need when they need it, uh, properly configured with the right permissions, you know, uh, all of that is incredibly important. Uh, I think the you know so uh, just because it's a critical part of the value stream of how to get environments that we need, right, so that our applications can actually run in them uh, that that's certainly one of them and I, I think the other part um, you know is uh, you know part of the the data uh, value stream right so I mean by the book right I kind of the classical definition of the application stack is you got your uh, application data and the rest of the environment and, and so just a mammoth problem of uh, you know how 
if we want to create the most production-like conditions for developers early in the value stream, right? That means uh, how do we... That's certainly one of the goals of DevOps, right? We want developers to find about mistakes, you know, that same day they made the mistake, not nine or 12 months later during integration test. So to do that requires a whole bunch of things, right? We need more storage. Uh, we need test data sets. We need uh, data sets that we can use in our daily work that doesn't have, you know, personally identifiable information on it that's been scrubbed of anything that could get us in trouble with information security or compliance uh, requirements. Um, you know, so that's a huge problem. And just like when you're looking at, um, it's kind of recalling my days of, uh, you know, working with an ERP system, right? It's like when data sets are multiple terabytes, <laughs> even just copying yeah. the data takes a long time. So, you know, this is where we need stored professionals, right? And, you know, people who, you know, can actually bring to bear technology so that we can, you know, do things on demand, you know, in minutes as opposed to hours or days or weeks or sometimes months, right? So, uh, you know, if you can get close to those problems, um, there's just no doubt in my mind that, you know, those are capabilities that's needed to elevate engineer productivity. And by engineers, I mean right. dev, test, operations, infosec, you know, it's everybody. Well, everything you just said sounds like it's like music to the ears of NetApp folks, right? So, I mean, that's like the biggest softball of it all, I would think, right, right Andrew? Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, I, I don't think it's any secret to, you know, NetApp employees, NetApp customers, right, being able to clone data sets, you know, instantly, non-disruptively, having that available to them. You know, one of the most frequent conversations I have is simply making people aware of the value of storage, the value of data at every step throughout the application lifecycle, right, yeah. dev, test, etc. And then it's just, you know, hey, let's make those features available at every layer of the stack as quickly, as easily, as simply as we possibly can. And that's where I have a startling number of conversations at these days. Uh, and it's something that is critically important. We just kind of forget about that. Oh, well, yeah, and also and having, an a having an API available for all that stuff too is, is, is extremely important to make this work. Yeah, it's kind of standard though. I mean, no one sells anything that's not programmable these days. <laughs> and, and, you know, I guess uh, I would want to just validate that you know anyone who is you know can bring those kind of solutions uh, or capabilities you know to bear uh, is relevant uh, and is um, not just relevant. I mean that, those are capabilities that every development team needs, right? I mean the goal is you know we want fast flow, but we also want teams to be able to work independently, right? They don't have to wait, you know. They have to wait, open up seven tickets for you know people in operations and wait six weeks, right? How do you make them you know uh, able to get what they need when they need it quickly so that they can you know get their work done so customers can get value? I mean, if uh, there's no doubt that storage is a part of that discussion. You know, actually, maybe um, just to share with you kind of a personal perspective on that. So, in the Phoenix project, it was a very deliberate choice to make the, the protagonist, the hero of the story, the head of operations. Um, and, and the reason for that was that, you know, it was really kind of a part of a, I almost would call it sort of this moral crusade. For for many years, uh, what really bothered me, um, and this is in the early 2000s, um, you know, up until the Phoenix project, is that and even now, right, is that often operations 
gets overly delegated, right? It's development that gets all the money, the strategic uh, authority, the positional power, um, and ops, in the worst case, gets outsourced, right, because viewed as tactical. <laughs> and there's, there's, there's something so wrong in that narrative, right? Um, and you know, that, I think the reason why we wrote the Phoenix Project the way we did was to show that ops is just as critical as development, right? And that, I think that's been uh, one of the strongest themes in the DevOps community. And I think that famous you know, 10 deploys a day at Flickr, you know, what they verbalized so well, right? We're doing 10 deploys a day every day at Flickr because dev and ops are working together. And and so uh, the notion that, you know, ops is any less important than development, you know, is just one uh, one that's absolutely false. And, and so I think the reason that, um, uh, so one of the things that was sort of gleaning from your, your question, Glenn, is like, oh, well, storage, networking, DBAs, right? You know, they're so tactical. It's like, no, 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 those are as critical capabilities needed. Um, it is just as important as any developer is. And, you know, so that was really one of the, the points that we try to make in that book. You know, I think it's important to point out that, you know, DevOps does not mean developers are taking over operations, right? It does not mean that we are putting operations people, you know, out of a job. It simply means that the two organizations are working together to facilitate better business outcome. It doesn't mean I can hire half the people. <laughs> well, I tell you, what it meant to me was that you know, not outside of the business outcomes, uh, I have a personal relationship with many of the you know the customers that I deal with, and these are storage administrators. And and what the when I read the Phoenix Project and when I was kind of done absorbing all of that, um, I realized that my job for from then on was going to be to do everything I could possibly do to make sure that my customers got to spend Sunday afternoons watching football instead of having to even think about their production environment because things would work, and when they failed, they failed the way they're supposed to fail. Uh, and, and when they were at work, they were at work. And, and so many people in our business don't get to do that. Uh, and and that's, that's wrong. And, and I think that as an industry, if we can solve that problem for many of the people that we work with and interface with on a daily basis, we've created value to them uh, and they, in turn, will also be creating value for their business. So that that was the revelation I had when I read the Phoenix Project. And so, you know, it kind of changed the way I just looked at everything. Instead of just trying to solve a technical problem, we're, we're trying to solve some much bigger problems here that are much more important. Necessarily say, selling the same and integrating the same technologies, just, again, the why is different. And I think that that's what changed for me when I read the book. Yeah, I I love that. And I think uh, there's this wonderful quote from Nathan Shimmick. Uh, you know, he said to me, uh, it was actually after a conference, uh, it was uh, Jez Humble's conference, Flowcon, uh, this is in 2013. Uh, he said, you know, we need DevOps to make our work humane. Uh, throughout my career, I've worked on every holiday, on my birthday, on my spouse's birthday, and even on the day my son was born. And oh my gosh, I remember when I heard that. I mean, there was tears welling up in my eyes because here's the, I was like, what what sort of insanity have we created where this is, you know, this is the expectation of what we need in operations, right? And you know, uh, the other secondary feeling was like, holy cow, I've been a part of those, you know, uh, I I was complicit in that as well, right? I probably helped create some of those systems where you know we forced people to do that, and so you know, I think you know I think the reason why DevOps speaks so strongly to so many of us is that we now know that there's a better way, and you know in terms of like the if we zoom way out, you know IDC says there's eight million ops people on the planet, eight million developers on the planet, you know 
I think most optimistically, we can say that you know one to two percent uh, of that population is working in these more humane, massively more productive work systems. And so, you know, in my mind, that means we have ninety-eight percent more to go. So when someone says, you know, DevOps is, you know, are we done with DevOps yet? Are we ready for the next thing? It's like, no, no, we have ninety-eight percent more to go. Right? This is this is important, not just for uh, our profession, right? But you know, for people's lives, for uh, you know, just uh, to create a culture of learning, right? It's just, uh, I think, is an important human problem. And, and how do we make sure that people aren't left behind? So along those lines, Gene, w- one of the, the challenges that, that, that I've personally had uh, since my own revival, if you will, uh, with the book, very similar to Glenn's experience, uh, where it just very spo- it spoke directly to my life experience in this industry and, and opened my eyes to, to – it was funny. I went through a transition. You know, you start that book, and, it, and, it's, and it's like memory it's, – it's a walk down memory lane, and it's not until <laughs> a third in that you realize that it's not a happy story, that the story you're reading – is actually a terrible like Stockholm syndrome, right? Yeah. And it shouldn't be that way. Um, th- there's that, or at least for me, there's that uncomfortable moment when you realize that, yeah, you've got all this experience in, in doing things a very backwards way. Um, but the challenge that I've had, quite frankly, is, is that the IT industry is so centered around products that, that, that getting my peers to dedicate time to go study on patterns and practices instead of buying products is, is, is proven to be quite the little mountain. So I was wondering uh, what, what, what your thoughts on that were. And, and if, if I'm blunt about it, the land grab that, that appears to be going down around DevOps. Yeah. Uh, let me just address one point of it. So, so how do we reach the remaining 98% of you know, people who aren't working in you know, this uh, DevOps principles and patterns as part of their daily work. And in my mind, it means that you know, we have to use every part of the ecosystem. And I think vendors are a big part of it, right? The fact that uh, NetApp, Red8, you know, so many organizations, and you know, let me just keep going across, whether it's uh, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, IBM, you know, just go through the largest vendors. Uh, you know, uh, one of the, they're all activating their uh, respective customer bases, right? Trying to elevate the state of the practice, and that's actually been amazing to see. So, yeah, I guess one interpretation is that it's a land grab. I guess you know, uh, maybe my more generous interpretation is that you know, hey, uh, you know, the technology vendors um, have a tremendous degree of influence in terms of you know what the state of the practice is, because often the the tools you know dictate you know how work is done. But you know, I think you're absolutely right. Is that you know, I think we're entering this different era. Where you know the days of someone uh, sort of picking a vendor and then relying on that vendor for the next three decades of the career, <laughs> essentially the vendor dictating the career roadmap, I think those days are quickly coming to an end. And, and so I think that's exposing this other part um, of the ecosystem that will become more important, which is, uh, um, you know. It's, it's never been a better time to be a learner. You know, you have DevOps days cropping up in every community. Uh, you have more conferences than ever. Um, you know, you have book clubs. Um, you know, you have, uh, you know, I think all these different ways of learning that I think are responsible for DevOps spreading so much more quickly than, you know, say even Agile did um, 12 years ago. Um, and, and, you know, I think there's all these other um, parts of the ecosystem that's needed as well, right? There's you know, secondary and tertiary education. You know, a friend of mine, Charlie Betts, uh, he just came out with an initiative called. Uh, oh my goodness! Uh, yeah, he he's been working with the uh, 
uh, Minsky. So these are kind of the non R1 educational institutes uh, in Minnesota. You know, uh, they spend billions of dollars of, uh, you know, educating, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of students uh, at the university level. You know, he was asking a question of, you know, if, uh, in fact, that they even went on record saying if Target just did a big reduction in force for project managers and release managers, you know, why are we still teaching project management in our curriculum as a mandatory part of the coursework, right? Well, this clearly speaks for a, a, a different type of curriculum. And so, uh, you know, he's putting together, uh, you know, what that curriculum could look like. Um, it, it could be trainers, certification, you know, who knows, you know, uh, what are, you know, what are going to be the best ways to reach you know that population so you know I, I guess i'm optimistic about um you know the ways to reach um everybody and you know i think uh oh, sorry i just sort of lost my train of thought here the I, I think the 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 biggest part um you know is you know that we're, we're lifelong learners. I mean, I think one of the most important things that, uh, you know, leaders can do is say, hey, um, you know, the expectation of everybody is that uh, we must become lifetime learners. In fact, uh, I was just listening to this podcast this morning. Um, someone had mentioned in the development profession, it's really not so interesting what you've done in the last five, 10, even 20 years. Really, the most important competitive advantage uh, that any employee can bring is their capacity to learn. So, you know, if uh, what a great tone to set. Yeah, I'm 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 also a huge believer in that. I, I, I don't care what's in your head already. I care about your ability to get new things in it. Yeah, that's right. And, and but, you know, by the way, um, I, I also listened to this kind of very moving video on this about uh, it was from uh, Jeffrey Snover. Uh, he's one of the technical fellows at Microsoft. And, and he said uh, the, the title of the talk was uh, Thriving in the Transformation or Thriving in the Transition. And he, it was a very personal story because he talked about you know, his days at Tivoli. And you know, he said when he found out about sort of the Windows servers, right? You know, he used to be on the Ultrix team in the, uh, doing package management tools for their, in the development group for Ultrix. And you know he and then he went to Tivoli, but he said the notion of Windows servers, right, where it could be for everybody. He he became enthralled in it, and he said I had to learn everything about it. I became known as you know if you had any questions about you know Windows servers, right, he was a person to go to, and he eventually you know helped lead the uh, many initiatives at Microsoft, including you know the creation of PowerShell, um, and you know his battle to put command line. Into Windows, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, th- I think that's the journey of. Uh, yeah, I think what he said so well was that you know, whenever these we're in times of this type of transition, right? You, you throw yourself into it, and you make sure that everybody knows that you know this is what you love, and you really become the go-to person for that. And you know, essentially, Snow was saying that it takes you to great places, and I think that's been validated. You know, just, I think that's a common story, isn't it, of so many people we know, whether it was virtualization. Or uh, you know the new world of you know even storage appliances uh, you know way back in the day, um, it was uh, I think that's really the common pattern of how technologists thrive in times like this, right? Is to have that capability and the skills that everybody uh, needs to know, and you know it takes us to great places. All right, thanks so much, Gene Kim, for joining us today. Uh, Gene, if people wanted to get in touch with you to, to ask you about the Phoenix Project or any of your other things that you're working on, how could they get in touch with you? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, probably the best way to reach me is just tweet at me. Uh, I'm Real Gene Kim on Twitter. Um, and um, and if it's of interest, anyone who is interested in getting the first 140 pages of the DevOps Handbook, uh, we'll provide the link um, as part of the show notes. So uh, I hope that's useful to you in your journey. Excellent. Thank you so much again, Gene Kim, for joining us. Um, anytime you want to come back, feel free. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Justin, Glenn, Andre, Gene. Uh, it was great to be here. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. All right. Also, uh, Glenn Deckhazer, thank you for joining us. Uh, Glenn Deckhazer of Red 8. Glenn, if anyone want to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Well, again, you can tweet at me, at G Deckhazer, G-D-E-K-H-A-Y-S-E-R. Um, tweeting a lot. and uh, Or you can get me, Glenn, at Red8.com. All right. And we'll, uh, if you're going to be at NetApp Insight and you're a member of the tech team, we'll be doing the onstage tech team uh, DevOps discussion again. And we'll also be covering some of this talk with Gene Kim. We'll have some new material, so if you're interested in that, Feel free to stop by. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at netup. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontappodcast.com. If you'd like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, we'd like to thank Gene Kim and Glenn Deckhazer for joining us. Thanks for listening. How about that, Gene Kim? Yeah, that's pretty awesome. That is pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. I think so, he gave us only one-tenth of his knowledge, not even that. I know. And I will be at DevOps Days Nashville. So at the point that this is released, it will be Friday morning, so we'll still have a whole nother day. Is will you be wearing cowboy boots and chaps? Awesome. I will oh, not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you sure? Positive. I don't know. Did you guys bust up on your German? Uh, da or yeah. ya or no I, I suck at German <laughs> not at all me either <laughs> uh, ein bretzel that means one pretzel <laughs> ein beer ein beer ein beer bitte <laughs> <laughs>